Hi, Tracy. Who put you up to this? What do you mean? You just woke up this morning and suddenly decided to run for president? It's nothing against you, Tracy. I mean, you're the best. Uh, I, I just thought... Uh... Okay. You're on, Mr. Popular. Hello and welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And that was Tracy Flick, a.k.a. Reese Witherspoon in Election. And speaking of elections, y'all, this episode drops on Election Day in the States, so... Hopefully y'all are listening to this in line to vote. Unless you early voted, like I did, in which case gold stars and I voted stickers all around. (laughs) Spoken like a real Tracy Flick, Caroline. Although, you know, I wonder if Tracy Flick would be feeling a little less salty these days because young women have been flocking to political campaigns this election cycle. I mean, it's not just handsome white guys like Chris Klein just waking up and deciding, you know, if not them, then who? (laughs) But regardless of the outcomes, we still have a lot of catching up to do for gender equal political representation. Like, even if all the favored and toss-up female candidates win in the midterms, women would still comprise barely a quarter of House and Senate seats. Not to mention this all-too-real phenomenon that political scientists call campaigning while female. That's on the nose. Yeah, it's basically shorthand for the fact that campaigning while female typically comes with a whole lot of being judged on our looks and how we dress and having our qualifications questioned more intensely as well as a whole lot less fundraising for our campaigns. But the good news is, Caroline, there is one place where that isn't the case. School! Girls rule high school government, and more than a third of women serving in Congress have previously served in student government. Plus, young women also make up more than 40% of student council presidents at two- and four-year colleges. But college is also where we start to see that leak in our political pipeline to elected office that sustains our gender unequal government. So today, we're going back to school to chat with two former student leaders, one who's been inspired by her time in school politics and one who was a little more disillusioned. All to find out, what does the pipeline to political office look like for today's young women dreaming about running in tomorrow's elections? And what does it take to keep them from, well, leaking out? Okay, first off, let's lay out what the pipeline to political office even looks like. Well, not to be crude, Caroline, but uh, America's pipeline just looks very phallic. You know, if you are a rich white guy with a last name like Bush or Kennedy, you're going to go to a fancy prep school where you're going to make friends who will basically be your forever donor network. You're going to hop skip from there maybe to law school and zippity doo dah, you'll get on the ballot soon enough. Right. And, you know, that doesn't mean that all the dudes who sail through the pipeline are complete nincompoops who were in skull and bones. Take Beto O'Rourke. He served on the El Paso City Council as well as three terms in Congress. And don't forget, Caroline, he was in that punk band. That is true. And also don't forget that he comes from a tremendously wealthy and politically active family. 
He even went to the same boarding school as the Bushes. And regardless of your family or last name, dudes tend to get that political recruitment shoulder tap way more often than women do. But the good news, no matter your politics, is that while, yeah, it is easier to sail through the political pipeline when you have things like whiteness and wealth to grease the wheels, research also finds that any parental encouragement is a huge predictor of whether kids from all backgrounds will grow up to run for political office. And there are plenty of other ways to enter the pipeline that don't involve winning a socioeconomic lottery. You can volunteer with social justice organizations, maybe local political campaigns, work as a political aide, or just have that Tracy Flick deep determination to run. Which brings us back to high school, where the student political pipeline begins and quickly begins to get leaky. So first, we want to know what is up with those early leaks in the student government pipeline. Like, how do we get from girls running student governments across the country to having only 322 women having ever served in Congress? Well, to get a better idea, we sent our producer Abigail on a mission to talk to some of the women who'd leaked out. Hey, Abigail. Hi, y'all. Welcome back to Unladylike. Thank you for sending me on your dirty work mission. (laughs) (laughs) It's important dirty work. Totally. Okay, so Abigail, why aren't more of our rad girl student leaders becoming grown-ass women political leaders? That is a great question, Caroline. And so I put it into a Facebook post, (laughs) (laughs) a.k.a. reportage. Um, But I ended up chatting with a number of people who had either run for some sort of leadership position as students or actually served in one. Some of them were listeners, some were my Facebook friends, and some were people that I, you know, sought out. But there were a few big deterrents that came up over and over again in my conversations with these women. So the first one and kind of the biggest one is confidence. A lot of people I talked to just felt like, you know, somebody else could probably do a better job than me, so I just won't even try. And among the people who I talked to who had enough confidence to run for something, a lot of them then had experiences that sort of dashed their confidence from then on. So one example of this is my friend named Jenny. She was um, student body president at her super small rural high school. But one day she overheard someone in the hallway say that they thought Jenny was doing a bad job. And then she just was sort of crushed by that. Oh, thinking back to high school, I would have been crushed, too. Like, not because I had zero confidence, but just facing the rejection of my peers would have been way too horrifying for me. Totally. Oh, yeah. Big time. And, you know, research does show that one of the biggest hurdles to getting more women in office is that women are less likely to feel qualified to run. Once they're in the race, though, they are just as likely to win as men are. That is fascinating to me Um, because deterrent number two is what I will call politics, which is a technical (laughs) term. Yes. (laughs) Um, But it's just this feeling that a lot of women told me about where they just felt very turned off by the world of politics, either because they didn't really like the realities of playing the game or they didn't like the level of scrutiny they were under. Yeah, I mean, we mentioned the whole campaigning while female thing already. Like, women feel that level of scrutiny hard. Totally. And that's not even mentioning harassment and the threat of harassment that women, especially women of color and LGBTQ candidates, face. 
And the last big deterrent that came up, number three, is sort of hard to name, but I'll call it discouragement, um, a.k.a. the lack of external encouragement. So the best example of this comes from a woman named Catherine, who I actually went to college with. Um, Catherine lives in Kansas City, Missouri. She works for a startup. And a few weeks back, after she responded to my Facebook post asking for stories of political disillusionment, I called her up. And I'm excited for you guys to meet her because she's kind of an IRL Tracy Flick. Oh, yes. (laughs) So Catherine has a lot of those pipeline prerequisites that you listed at the top of the show. She comes from a political-minded family. Her mom worked on campaigns. They were talking policy at the dinner table. Catherine was always encouraged to express her opinions. And she was co-captain of her high school debate and forensics team. She's like the poster child for a solid pipeline. You start off as a person that would do politics because your parents. And then once you're in it, it does just give you A, a leg up and like your your critical thinking and then B, um, your confidence for sure. And while Catherine wasn't super comfortable with the idea of the spotlight that running for something would have come with, she wouldn't have minded getting recruited. I definitely wouldn't have said no. Like if somebody had goaded me into it and be like, you should do this, you should, you know, you should run for office, you should do whatever. I would probably get into it. You could have been convinced. Yeah, definitely. But there's a catch. She told me that her debate team experience actually made her swear off of leadership and politics forevermore. Like leadership just makes you, uh, it just can suck. It can really suck. When Catherine was a junior in high school, she was appointed by her coach, captain of the forensics team, speech and debate. She was the most involved student there every day, seriously worked her butt off. So putting her in charge was kind of a no-brainer. Okay, so I was not like the coolest, like 17, 18-year-old captain in the world. I was like probably pretty mean. I really wanted everybody to do their best and I wanted us to win all the time. And um, that translated to me always making people come. I was the one that was always enforcing everybody to come to practices and to participate in our fundraisers and um, to give people feedback and like not just to do it for themselves. So I was like not everybody's favorite captain. The debate coach also picked another student to be co-captain with Catherine. He was kind of a popular guy. Think Tracy Flick's political enemy, Chris Klein. The other captain was the person who was um, in debate, and I, who shall not be named because I don't want to malign him because he was a good guy, but um, he did not do almost anything. And that's fine because I was willing to take on everything and more. But at that time, we had also switched over coaches, and that coach was more into debate. Catherine, meanwhile, was more into the speech side of things. He was also a man. He just worked with the other captain a lot more. Uh, It truly sounds like Catherine is living Tracy Flick's real life. (laughs) It does. And it's so unfortunate that this debate superstar was derailed from any political ambitions because debate is really where future candidates learn how to argue for their side and communicate their platforms To the voters. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge predictor of political involvement. Yeah, totally. And this brings us right up to the events that led to Catherine's discouragement. So there were three big things. Um, The first is the homecoming announcements. Kind of silly, yes, but a big deal when you're in high school. 
Catherine, as co-captain, was supposed to get to talk about the debate team to the whole school, make everybody want to join. Only she didn't get chosen by the coaches to do the announcement. The other captain guy did. Wait, the guy who was just not doing anything? Basically the Chris Klein here? (laughs) Yes. He got chosen along with, like, another senior student. And then there was the debate dinner. At the end of the year, the team would have this little award ceremony thing. And it was meaningful, you know, like the parents came. It was a whole thing. So we were there. And like I said, it was this new coach. But he thanked every single person on the team except for me. And I want to say he either like named like my co-captain as like being a big help as like the captainship or he named like all the seniors or something. Either way, it was like a group of people that I should have been in. And he just didn't name me or mention me at all. Y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been crushed. I think I just would have been super angry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think I would have just been crushed with anger. Yeah, I know. And the cherry on top of all of this was the third thing, which was this scholarship. It was this special thing at Catherine's school. A couple hundred bucks went to a senior on the debate team for college. Catherine and the co-captain dude are basically the only two kids eligible for it. And my co-captain got it instead of me. But the one thing that was kind of like my saving grace was that um, this one girl, she knew that he had gotten the scholarship that I hadn't. And she's like, I just wanted you to know, like, you really deserved that scholarship. And I was like, thank you (laughs) so much. (laughs) Like, that is all I wanted to fucking hear this whole year. That's all I wanted to hear. But then after that, so that whole experience just kind of, like, soured me. So despite being totally set up to succeed and, you know, having a little bit of attitude, this series of petty discouragements just wore Catherine down. She worked really hard, but she felt invisible. It's just, like, the opposite of getting a recruitment shoulder tap. More like the don't run for office shove. Right. So after like this whole experience, you really had the thought, never again. Like I am not doing this again. It was really after the after the that awards dinner where I didn't even get a thank you. I walked away from that and I was like, I'll send him an email that tells him like I'm upset that he didn't talk about me and how much I helped. But I'm done. Never going to do anything of, like, any kind of, like, position of power ever again. Like, this was the worst experience of my life. I just put two years into this, and I didn't even get a thank you at the end. (laughs) If your coach had instead been like, you know what, Catherine, like, I see the work that you did, maybe you would have been like, cool, I want to go into debate in college, or at least left you feeling very differently about the whole experience. If he would have said that, like, I can't even tell, I would be like, oh, yeah, that made everything worth it. A hundred percent. A hundred percent would have just made everything worth it. But like, I mean, when you say that, I'm just like, automatically, because he didn't say it, I think like, what if I wasn't doing that kind of a job? And because nobody told me otherwise, like, maybe that is really how it was. Mm, So it introduces this, like, self-doubt almost, or almost like I wasn't good enough kind of a feeling. So why would I ever try it again if I didn't even do it good this time? (laughs) Absolutely. Definitely. You know, it really sounds like Catherine got sort of a rude introduction to this concept of likability that so many female candidates out there have to deal with. Yes, totally. In fact, she told me that the word that would always come to her mind was uh, that she felt like she was being shrill. 
Oof. Oh, this not only reminds me of Tracy Flick, but also in the context of debate, it reminds me of grown-up Tracy Flick, a.k.a. Hillary Clinton, in the 2016 primary debates. And, like, watching her have to, quote-unquote, campaign while female, managing her over-preparedness and being so, so, so qualified to run for president while also having to be so, so, so thirsty for likability to just get the voters to like her. I mean, that was the hardest part, right? Yeah, 100%. And it's easy to see then why Catherine would really want to avoid that. And it also shows why that shoulder tap is so important for women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, as long as political parties are run by majority dudes, they aren't going to be great at looking outside of traditional talent pools to recruit. Whereas if they looked at more female-dominated pools like school boards and nonprofit organizations, they would find a ton of great potential candidates. And we got to shout out organizations like Emily's List who are actively doing that exact work, looking at the so-called unconventional talent pools to get more women to run. Yeah. And you guys, I do have a little bit of a silver lining to my sad trombone story. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> and that is that Catherine has actually dabbled in leadership stuff since high school, even though she's wore off of it. So mm-hmm. I met her in college because she was the um, outreach director for an environmental club that I was president of. Hair toss. <laughs> Wait, you, you were... You were a, a president, what, Abigail? Were you elected president, I Abigail? I sure was, yeah. Even though I guess I've, I've leaked out of the pipeline. But, you know, it's a benefit for you, so it's okay. <clears throat> yeah. Thank you for leaking out. Thank you. Yes. Um, but, but what this means is that there is still a tiny part of Catherine that would consider running for office, even though it's competing with some other voices in her head. If I were encouraged enough, like maybe, but it just seems like, I don't know, I like every turn, it's always like that voice in the back of my head, like, oh, no, don't do it. <laughs> well, another opportunity for a silver lining here is that Catherine has something in common with a lot of women who end up running for office anger. Like a 2014 study from the Institute for Women's Policy Research found that one of the major motivators for women who decide to run on their own, as opposed to being recruited to run, is getting angry at how government is being poorly run and just being like, you know what? Fuck it. I can do it better. I love productive rage. Yes. Yeah. And if Catherine does it, she's got my vote. I love a hard worker. Yes. And we are so happy that you introduced us to Catherine. Thanks so much, Abigail. You're welcome. I'll let you take it from here. Bye. Bye. She's probably off to secretly run for president again, (laughs) Caroline. (laughs) (laughs) But okay, it's not hard to see why young women like Catherine might get discouraged from pursuing a political career. But it also really makes you wonder, like, What would a non-leaky pipeline without that discouragement really look like for girls? Well, next up, we're going to find out by talking to a gal who's gone from Valentine's Day princess to president. Stick around. So what was the first thing that you ran for? Okay. Um, 
the f- <laughs> the first thing I ran for was Valentine's Day Princess. I think it was in eighth grade. We're back investigating what it takes for women to make it through that leaky-ass political pipeline to elected office. And yes, Valentine's Day Princess counts. It certainly does for our next guest, Erica, whose political dreams far surpass Valentine's Day Princess. She's a fifth-year senior at an Oklahoma university, and she's already been president twice of, you know, school stuff. Yes, but her ambition stretches all the way back to middle school. I remember... When I was in seventh grade, I got student of the month and on my student of the month poster, when it had the little section of what do you want to be when you grow up? I said a senator. And I really I can't remember why I put that because I don't even know if I necessarily knew what a senator was. But I said I want to be a senator and I still want to be a senator someday. So, yes. <laughs> I mean, such a bold choice, too. I mean, it sounds like even if you don't know what a senator does, like (laughs) it sounds like an important job, like doctor, you know, like. (laughs) Yeah, my my seventh grade teacher, the the one who collected the poster, she was like, I remember this quote. Actually, she said, oh, okay, aiming high. And I was like, (laughs) yeah. Erica is 23 now, but unlike Catherine and some of the other folks we heard from, Erica is still as excited about one day being senator as she was back in seventh grade. So we wanted to walk through her story to see what Erica's got that is helping her beat the pipeline odds. Well, the first thing Erica definitely has is that parental cheerleading. Yes. And Erica's mom embodies this hardcore. She herself is a total political news junkie, and Erica says growing up, they'd always have on CNN. And in grade school, Erica's class took a trip to their state capitol, and her mom came along. They got to listen to the House debate a bill. Yeah, so my mom was really intently listening to the, like, what was going on on the floor. And, like, I remember trying to ask her a question. It was probably about something other than politics, like lunch or something. And she was like, she's like, wait, 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 I'm listening. You know I love this stuff. And so um, then when she did that, then I was like, okay, wait. So I guess I'm going to have to intently listen right now. And so then I started really listening. And I didn't know what was going on, but I just saw, I don't know, these really important people in suits and on the podium and talking about whatever bill it was. As Erica got older, her mom's enthusiasm totally rubbed off on her. Plus, a pretty cool role model emerged in the 2008 election. I accept your nomination for presidency of the United States. The emotion, I guess, that my family had, my mom had, and the world really had at the time when uh, Barack Obama was running, everyone felt like, okay, this is when things are going to change. And everyone felt, like, hopeful, I guess you would say. Um, And I remember even in school, like, that we were just, we were always talking about the election. Uh, We even had, like, a mock election in class one day in my um, history class. And so I think that that's when I decided that I really wanted to be the one one day to make that type of change in people's life or bring people hope like that. And especially because like the community that I come from, I come from a low income community and um, seeing the struggles that, you know, my family may have had or anyone in my community may have had. Like I want, I always wanted to be someone to help people when I was younger, like way younger. I, I did want to be a pediatrician and then there was a missionary I wanted to be. So I've always wanted to help people. And so I think that, during that election, I, I realized, okay, this could be the way I can help people and help people from my community and um, people who look like me. You know, one day when I get older, I can be a senator. I'd be the one making the laws, you know? 
I'm I'm curious. Do you remember who won that uh, student mock election, Romney or Obama? <laughs> I do. Uh, Barack Obama won, and I think he won by like a couple students, and then he ended up winning like the whole thing. So we were excited. See, every vote matters. Yeah, <laughs> every vote exactly. matters. This is Pipeline Patch number two, a role model you can relate to. See it to be it, y'all. Like Obama, Erica is African-American, raised by a single mom, and wasn't born with a silver political spoon in her mouth. Plus, that realization she had about helping people through public office is something research has proven to be a huge motivator specifically for women. Yes, and what do you know, by the time Erica was in high school, she was ready to put her passion and organizing skills to work. Which brings us to pipeline patch number three, leadership experience, which of course helps build confidence. Like, this gal is dedicated. Erica's freshman year, she ran for and won vice presidency of her class because she said she was a little too nervous to run for president at that point. Sophomore year, though, she moved up and won the race for president and was reelected her junior and senior years. And she ran every campaign from the bottom up. Erica put a ton of effort into her grassroots mobilization from the cafeteria all the way to the locker rooms. From early on, even before I got into high school, uh, a thing my mom would always say is, is make friends with everybody. And um, so that's what I tried to do. I, I, mean, I, I mean, somebody could maybe be hearing this right now and be like, she wasn't friends with me, but I hope that's not the case. But Caroline, coalition building doesn't guarantee you'll win a race, even if you're Erica. That's right. Junior year, she ran for a statewide student council position. She had to make a big speech in front of thousands of kids and teachers. My speech actually went over the time limit, and so the lights got shut off, like, in the middle of my speech. Uh, it was devastating. <laughs> I was literally horrified. And I didn't win. I don't even think I got into the runoff. And so that was like a big loss. How, how long did it take you to get over that loss? Was oh, it tough? Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it, it took a long time. Maybe, honestly, like, it took a good six, seven months to, to get over, like, the sadness of it. And then it took, like, a year to get over, like, the... Oh, I'm about to use a lot of slang here, but like the saltiness of it. (laughs) Political saltiness dies hard, Caroline. And that first loss especially stung. But, you know, at the risk of sounding trite, losing was another skill Erica could put in her little uh, pipeline plumber's toolkit. You know, learning to lose and still bounce back. That is resilience. Erica is Kimmy Schmidt level unbreakable. Yes, she is. And females are strong as hell, don't you know? And this isn't the only race that Erica lost. When she started college at a big state school in Oklahoma, she knew right away that student government was her thing. So she ran for Arts and Sciences Senate. I actually didn't win that election. So I did not get into student government my first, uh, my first year at college. But my mom always would tell me, well, Barack Obama lost his first Senate election. And so that made me feel a little bit better. And Erica's mom just kept on encouraging her, so she kept on running, which is so flipping cool. I mean, Erica is a first-generation college student, y'all, and eventually she won a seat on the student senate. And more people than Erica's mom were starting to notice her knack for leadership. Toward the end of her junior year, Erica was at a Senate meeting, and they were doing a brag bag where people write down compliments and encouragements to each other anonymously, and one of them said... 
Erica for vice president. And I was like, oh, wow. Like somebody really thought I could I, I could be vice president of the whole student body. And then the vice president, the outgoing vice president at the time, she kind of came up to me at the end of the Senate meeting. And she was like, I really think that you could run for vice president or president, whichever one you would want to do. Like, I really think a lot of people believe in you. And, and she's like, I, I believed in you. So she was just kind of like, she just kind of put the seed into my brain. And I was like, oh, wow. Um, people think that I could run for president or vice president. Do you think if she hadn't kind of made that follow up that you might not have made that run? Mm-hmm. There's a strong, uh, there was, there, there's a strong possibility that I wouldn't have made that run. Erica said that another woman encouraging her to run meant a lot. And honestly, like, I feel like that's something women across the board could use. Once female student politicians hit college, for instance, their self-doubt over their qualifications starts to grow. But male students are more likely to push through those doubts. There was this 2013 study that found that even when men don't feel qualified to run, they're still 50 percent more likely than self-doubting women to just go ahead. And again, Erica was able to push through all that thanks to her support system, her mom. I've seen in my life that I, I do get nervous about things or get scared about things, but I often overcome that fear after I, you know, talk to myself a little bit like, okay, you can do it. If anybody else can do it, you can do it. Um, because that's something my mom would always say is if, if, they, if someone else can do it, you can too. And so that always replays over and over in my mind. I think that that comes from her not wanting me to limit myself because of my background or because of my race or my gender. So when you told her that you were going to run for president, what did she say? <laughs> she said, oh, okay, like, all right, well, let's run, you know. So Erica did it. And she did not just run for vice president like that brag bag paper suggested. She ran for president, baby. Her running mate was her friend and fellow student, a white guy named Braden. I feel like our Tracy Flick tables are finally turning, <laughs> Caroline, because the Chris Klein character is now the vice presidential running mate, not the guy who just wakes up and is like, I guess I'll run for president. Yeah, you got to make allies where, where you can what was your, both your strategy and your platform? Like, were you as much of a coalition builder running for college president as you were in high school? So our platform was Unite the Campus. Um, and so we really believed in that, the first word, Unite. The whole platform, the whole reason, mission why we were running was um, to make SJC more approachable to people on campus. You know, we work for students. So we want students to be able to come and tell us their issues and 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 we be the one to relay it to the administration. And so students, all students, all organizations, no matter what their numbers are or what their background is or anything, could feel that they had a voice on campus and that the student government cared about that voice. Harkening back to those high school campaigns, Erica got down to the grassroots. Remember, she goes to a big university. There were more than 400 student organizations to reach. So we couldn't go to everyone, but we tried to hit as many as we could in a month. Um, so we were at two to three organizations a night. I mean, we went from freshman organization or a freshman dorm. Um, and it was like in the basement of their dorm all the way up to the biggest organization on campus, which was homecoming. So. Um, so, yeah, we, we tried to span out all all across campus. 
After their month of hard work and campaigning, it was time for the votes to be cast. Erica and her running mate, Brayden, were up against one other team, and they went to their Senate meeting to hear the results. When we were announced, it was just like, we were like, wow, this really happened. Like, we really won. This is a huge deal, y'all, because according to the American Student Government Association, African-American women make up just 7 percent of student body presidents at colleges nationwide. First thing I did after we were, you know, shaking hands and getting interviewed and stuff like that, I called my mom and told her to get an inauguration dress ready because she was like, well, if you win, I have to go buy a dress and all this kind of stuff. And I told her to get an inauguration dress ready and she was screamed and she was like, what? You won? And I was like, yeah, I did. And so it was uh, it was really exciting. Oh, please <laughs> tell us not to make this. This happens so often, like when female candidates are like, and what she wore was this. But now I've got to ask, uh, what does the inauguration dress look like? We're dying to know. Mine uh, was just, um, it was like a lace and it was like um, kind of like Kind of went down, not all the way to my ankles, but it was kind of a longer dress. Um, lace, long dress, and then I made sure that I had a white blazer for obvious reasons because Olivia Pope wears white. So, <laughs> yes. so yes. Now, Caroline, not to make too much out of pop cultural references, but I do think that it represents a sort of progress that in 1999, we just had Tracy Flick. Like, that was our model for what a politically ambitious young woman looked like. Whereas today, in 2018, we have young women like Erica who are now looking at Olivia Popes, Mm -hmm. who are equally ambitious and single-mindedly determined to make it into political office. But there's not the whole likability and shrill issue. Like, Olivia Pope is just purely a badass. But I do think even pop cultural role models can make a difference. And I think we're hearing that from Erica. Absolutely. And with that white blazer, Erica is just rocketing through this pipeline, y'all. She's got her mom backing her up. She's got her role models. She's got experiences, both winning and losing. But now she's actually going to be president. And what a time to take office, y'all. Remember, Erica ran and served as president during the fall of 2017 and the spring of 2018, which, you know, was kind of a big year for politics nationwide. There was Me Too. There was the Charlottesville March. There was the immigration debate. So how did being student body president impact how Erica feels about Washington politics? We'll find out after the break. We're back with past and hopefully future Madam President Erica. It didn't take long for Erica to feel the weight of her role. Yeah, Erica says that sometimes it was hard to strike a balance between being just a person, a college student, and being a leader. I was the president of all of the student body. You know, people who even may have thought differently than I did or thought the same or whatever. I wasn't just the president of this one community. Erica was confronted with this tension a couple months into her term. President Trump had announced that he would be rescinding DACA, and Erica's campus sort of exploded. We had protests on our campus, and a lot of the like the the friendships and community that we've made throughout the campaign, like they're really like feeling the effects of this. And it was all you know, it was national news, and it was just like everyone was just in a like 
a state of like shock and awe. It was just like, you know, what was going on? And, you know, my like my first response was wanting to uh, just go and say like what what I believed, like just what I believed, uh, you know, taken to my maybe my personal Twitter or, or anything like that. And like my my emotions because of like friends and the 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 students because like, even if they weren't friends, they were students on my campus. You know what I'm saying? So I have this type of bond with them, even if we've never met. But instead of just popping off a tweet about her personal feelings around it, like some presidents do, Erica sat down with her team and their advisors. Their first priority was making sure students on their campus felt heard. So they crafted a statement that was like, hey, we hear you, and listed resources for students who had questions or who were feeling unsafe. We did get feedback from the students that were affected by it, and they felt that they were really they were really thought about and cared for at that moment. So that was that was our main priority, and it just had took a while for me to to flip into student body president mode rather than Erica. <laughs> like Erica has a feeling about this, and she wants to go and tell the world type of mode. <laughs> Another thing Erica helped institute while she was president was a campaign to address sexual assault on campus. They started public and bystander awareness programs for students. It was the first time her school had had anything like that. She also helped set up an advisory board where students can take complaints about race relations and inclusion. I feel like that was always something that was, like, internalized by our minority community. Um, But it was definitely brought out a little bit more um, last year during our term. Um, And it may have been because I was the second black um, student body president, um, may have been because of the nation, but it was definitely something that we made it a point to address. Now there's a standard. We can't not talk about diversity and inclusion and um, social issues anymore, you know what I'm saying? Because uh, we did it, so now everyone else is hopefully going to have to follow that standard. Erica's really proud of what she accomplished as president. And for someone who grew up with the dream of helping her community in whatever way she could, every achievement along the way as president is like a drop of Drano clearing out that pipeline. Caroline, I'm also so proud of us for really keeping up this pipeline metaphor this whole episode. And those accomplishments are sort of the personal proof she needs to combat the doubts and fears that we know plague so many women with political ambitions. Even Erica. It's just a little nerve wracking because um, you're going up against people you never really haven't you'd never known before. And you get this type of like imposter syndrome, like like you don't belong here or you're not you're not good enough. Because even with me, the past five presidents had been men. And so it was like, who who was I to challenge this this tradition? You know, what I'm saying. Shout out to challenging the tradition. Erica is calling out that pipeline made by and for dudes and being like, hey, I deserve a spot here, too. And she's unapologetic about that. I feel like as a woman, you're and um, in my case, as a black woman, you're always there's a thought that's like, "Okay, well, this isn't this isn't traditional. So you're going to you might have to work a little bit harder to get this position or to. you know, to make yourself seem credible because you're not usually in these positions. Um, And I think that that's just a fear. That's just like something that you always like you always have to overcome that I don't know if men have to overcome. Uh, Yeah, uh, they don't. 
Uh, men are 60% more likely to say that they are very qualified to run for office, while women are more than twice as likely to say that they are not at all qualified. Men who are probably less qualified than you are just jumping in. And the exciting thing is that more young women like Erica are jumping in, too. Yeah, and Erica says her experience as student body president has only made her more dedicated to one day being Senator Erica. It was so rewarding to really see and hear from other students of color will come to me and say, oh, I'm going to be the next um, student body president one day. Um, and that was always really that it was it was motivating to me because that's in a sense, that's also what I wanted to do. I mean, just giving people, this is kind of going back to to when I was talking about in seventh grade, just giving people the, the type of hope and the type of motivation to take on these issues and to take on this, you know, this big role. That's what I want to do one day when I, if I end up running for, for office one day, just giving people from my community hope that somebody is there caring for them because that's that's what I wanted all growing up you know I wanted someone fighting for me so I think that being student body president kind of gave me that oomph I guess you would say to to carry that on throughout my time like in law school hopefully we'll see how after the LSAT but during my time in law school and just thinking about my future career. When you see all these pipeline factors in action, the mom, the encouragement from peers, the experiences with resilience, the ambition, it's not hard to see why Erica has been so successful. Totally. And she's given us just one example of how not to leak out of the pipeline. But all those factors we've been mentioning, you can combine them in lots of different ways. Yeah. And and it's important, sure, to start all this stuff when girls are young, But we can definitely make up for it as grown-ups, too. I mean, that's what we've been seeing this past year with the so-called pink wave of women running for office. So if anything, y'all, just know that you can get out there and run. And if you're thinking that a dude is more qualified than you, chances are he's not. (laughs) Partisan politics aside, uh, what is it going to take for us to finally get a woman president? Well, first, to start, it's going to take women women doing what they're doing right now is is putting themselves out there and running and and overcoming any of the fears or any of the negative stereotypes that the nation is placing on us or any of that it's going to take us really doing what what my mom says is if anybody else can do it you can like it's going to take that thought but also i think that it's going to take honestly nation to to get out of the the mindset of that we can't or that it's like so shocking that a woman would even want to be president or that a woman could be president because I'm just like, have you seen us take care of whole families? You know what I'm saying? I mean, my mom is literally, my mom was a single mom and she took over, gave her three, three kids, you know, and she did it like coming from a low-income community. Like we do crazy things. Like I, you know, feel like we could handle the nation. Like, I mean, I know it's like, that's like the biggest thing, but for so for it to not be such a shock and um, for us to be a little bit more open-minded, I guess you would say. Speaking of which, when can we vote you into Senate? 
<laughs> um, I, you know, I have no idea. I'm just trying to get to law school first. Um, but you, l- listen, if it's up to mama, she says that uh, 2044 is when my presidential bid will come out. But uh, <laughs> yes. I got to tell you, need shirts already. I know. I'm, uh, I already feel more hopeful for the future. And I'm not even kidding. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, guys. I mean, seriously, Kristen, should we just print those T-shirts right now? Is that weird? Yes and yes. Okay, y'all, you've got no excuses now. Let's start raising girls to run for president already. And also, do it yourselves. As always, you can find all of our resources and sources for this episode over at unladylike.co. That's dot co because we're fancy. And while you're there, pick up our book, Unladylike, A Field Guide to Smashing the Patriarchy and Claiming Your Space. We've got a whole chapter about politics. Also, tell us your thoughts. Got a campaign underway that we should know about? Want to tell us your story of political encouragement or discouragement? Hit us up on social at Unladylike Media or send us a note at hello at unladylike.co. And y'all can get actually good news about women in the world and women in politics every Wednesday by subscribing to our newsletter. You can sign up on our website or click the link in the episode description of the show. Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Mixing and sound design is by Casey Holford. Julie Subrin is our editor. Ash Sanders and Abigail Barr transcribe our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radelet. Special thanks to Dietrich at KXZY, Oklahoma State University's student radio station. And we are your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin. Next week. Kit's very in Georgia. It's a like smaller um, white envelope in Texas, as, as you can imagine. It's big. Texas, everything is big. It's a huge box with everything that you can imagine, swabs and boxes in it. Everything you didn't know you needed to know about rape kits. Good news included. Make sure you subscribe to our show and your favorite podcast app so you don't miss it. And remember, got a problem? Get unladylike. Hey, Abigail. Hi, y'all. Welcome back to Un- <laughs> You better keep that snort. Okay. <laughs> Stitcher. <laughs>